right, our teaching today comes from Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to take a look at verses 21 through 33. You are certainly welcome to follow along in your pew Bibles if you would like. I'm also even going to give you an added bonus resource today. Uh, There's about a dozen and a half books that I tend to recommend for couples during premarital counseling as a benefit to them. But my favorite one, most well-worn one, is by Timothy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. This is my most common wedding gift to people. So if you're looking for something really good on the topic, that's the one I'd probably recommend first, okay? A lot of what I'm going to say here is some of the thoughts that I've uh, absorbed from his teaching on this text over the years. But Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, here the Apostle Paul writes the following. He says, everyone, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. And uh, it's also one of those texts that's a good reminder that when you come to God's word, Every single one of us comes with our own personal filters, like uh, familial and cultural and gender and other types of filters that we look at a text with. And so, for instance, if you were uh, in a bad marriage or if you were raised in the household, perhaps, of a bad marriage, uh, you might come at this text with a specific filter. You might be a little bit jaded regarding everything that you hear. The other hand, it's also true that if you were raised in the household of a really good marriage, you might be a little bit naive when it comes to what what it actually takes to make marriage work. Uh, For some people who are born in the eastern part of the world, if you are born into an eastern collectivistic society where the goal of relationships in life, by and large, is to benefit the whole, like the greater good, and bring honor to the nation or honor to the family, What Paul says here about submission for the sake of your particular role doesn't, it sounds kind of obvious. Like, of course we should do that for the greater good of the whole. But when Paul says what he says about romantic love in marriage, that might almost seem like it cheapens the whole thing, like it cheapens your responsibility. Most of us, however, were born in a Western, individualistically minded society, and that means that the goal of Western civilization for many is personal emotional fulfillment, and therefore, What this text says about romantic love, we think, oh, yes, we like that opportunity. But when we hear that thing about submission, that's like almost offensive to some of us, right? That's a cultural lens. It's a cultural filter that you have. 
Um, I remember a good example of this. I remember going to a wedding a number of years ago from some friends of Aiden mine, and uh, it was some uh, a coworker from her work, and they were I guess I would describe them as nominally Christian. They called themselves Christian, but they didn't have any real strong convictions and weren't active in the life of a church or anything like that. Uh, and so they had kind of a minister for hire do the ceremony. Right? And he read from actually this text from Ephesians 5. And in the room that we were in, in the reception hall, when he read that, uh, there was a very clear and distinct uh, audible gasp from a woman when she heard that part about submission. And it, like it reverberated through the room. And, you know, I don't think she was trying to make a scene. I think she was simply like viscerally reacting to the single most culturally offensive thing that she had ever heard in her life. Because she was born and raised in a society that said, Everything a girl can do, a guy can do. Everything a guy can do, a girl can do. Gender fluidity and so on and so forth, right? And so she was just reacting. Why? Because she has a cultural lens and a filter that she brings to God's word. What I'm going to ask you to do today then is just simply for a moment suspend and put down any cultural and familial and any other kind of filters that you might have. So like we just sometimes have to consciously say God has to speak for himself. I don't have to give a knee-jerk reaction or an eye-roll reaction to something that sounds true or untrue for me personally. I have to sometimes just stop and let God speak for himself. Let him establish what he's trying to say. And maybe, just maybe, especially in a fallen world with my fallen flesh, when God speaks, it might really challenge me and it might alter and perhaps even shatter some of my own preconceived filters, lenses, and conceptions. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to break the text into these three points for teaching. The opening verse, we're going to say, who is this concept and teaching of marriage ultimately for? Number two, how does this get done? God's ministry of marriage. I'm going to give you three, I hope, kind of manageable goals and steps for that. And lastly, we're going to look at uh, that marriage here on earth is not a thing in and of itself, but is a pointer to something that is uh, even more beautiful. And so we'll look at what that is. So who this is for, how this is done and what this ultimately points to. First of all, who this is for. Obviously, it's for married people. Uh, I also, you know, I don't know if I alluded to the fact or not, but just some of the filters that some of us have. Some of you are single. Some of you are newly married. Some of you have been married for a long time. Some of you uh, in our congregation, I know, are nearing the end of a bad marriage. Some are on the outside of a bad marriage. Some are widowed or, or a widower. And therefore, we're all coming at this from slightly different angles. I think every single person from God's inspired and universal word can learn something really important from this, especially when you consider that all of us as the bride of Christ will ultimately be married for all eternity with God. So it's helpful for all of us. But there is a specific caveat that Paul gives here regarding marriage. And actually, we didn't even read it a second ago. It's a couple verses before what we read. And in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, those who are filled with the Spirit will now live this way. So everything behaviorally he offers in Ephesians from chapter 5 onwards, it's after, in the middle of Ephesians 5, he has said, okay, this is for those of you who are filled with the Spirit. So now when he talks about Christian parenting and he talks about Christian marriage and he talks about uh, Christian work and he talks about spiritual warfare, he's talking only, he's assuming You will not have the power or the energy to carry this out unless you are filled with the Spirit of God. This is only for people who are already filled with God's Spirit. To everybody else, it's not going to make sense, and you're not going to have the energy and the capacity to do it. 
Now what he also says then, verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now again, who's supposed to do that? Every Christian. This is one of those things. If you are one of the people who like to follow along in your pew Bible, so if you opened up, it's a, our, our translations that we have in our pews are 1984 NIV translations. And one of the things that you'll notice is between verse 21 and 22, there is a section header that says instructions for Christian households. And then in verse 22, what it says is, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, wait a second. This is a, a worthwhile reminder that the section headers in the Bible, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God and were never intended by the Apostle Paul. And sometimes they're very helpful. And at other times they reflect, I think, what is just kind of the ethos of the, the, the culture of the day. So 20th century, mid-20th century conceptions about gender roles, perhaps. Anyway, you slice it, that, putting that section header there, I do not think is particularly helpful. The Apostle Paul does not tell wives to submit to their husbands until after he has already said in verse 21 that all Christians are sub to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, he's stating that the basic posture of every Christian is to submit to Christ first, and to submit to one another in the sense of put the best interest of your marriage partner ahead of yourself. Now, there are unique ways that a wife does that for a husband in marriage. But make no mistake, he says to every Christian, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You have to start there. You have to also understand that what Paul is saying in his day in first century Rome, in a patriarchal, heavily patriarchal society, to tell the entire family, including what was called the pater familias, the, head, the male head of household, okay, you two, every one of you, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That was completely unheard of in his day. Absolutely culturally shocking. And the moralists of Paul's day would have actually said what Paul is encouraging women to do in this, wives to do in this, is actually fairly weak. And again, what was that? That was a cultural, cultural kind of blinder. Here's my ba basic point here. Paul's assumption is that godly marriage only works when both parties are filled with the Spirit and both parties are seeking to put the best interest of the other person ahead of themselves, just as Christ has done for us. Let me put a bow on this point. Paul does not say, submit to one another out of reverence for one another. See, that would be a different thought. If you submit and seek the best interest of the other person because you respect that person, what are you, you going to do when that person does something not particularly respectable? You're going to go into survival mode and you're going to stop seeking their best interest ahead of yourself. Don't you seek to... We all, by the way, we all do this in our weddings all the time. I always tell our young couples, the first vow you make is to God. And then and only then do you turn to one another and make your vows to each other. Because your first vow is based on saying, okay, God has been undeservedly good to me. And now I'm going to turn towards my marriage partner and say, and because he has been faithful to me, not because you've been faithful to me, because he's been faithful to me, I am committing to being undeservedly good to you moving forward. Okay, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not just reverence for the marriage partner. All right, point two. How this is done, again, I'm going to try to give you three sort of manageable points here, I think, from the text. The first one is you have to keep in mind that marriage is a covenant relationship. What does that mean? Because we don't talk about covenants all that often. Uh, near the end of the 
section, in verse 31, Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, if that sounds familiar beyond just Ephesians, uh, it's because Paul's not just coming up with that. Where is he getting that from? Genesis. Genesis 2, when God created Adam and Eve, the first humans and the first human relationship, which is marriage, in the middle of paradise, it tells us that marriage is God's institution, God's design, and he uses covenantal language to bring them together. Now, what's a covenant? Covenant is, uh, maybe you can best explain what it is by describing it against what it's not, which is most of our relationships in life. Most of our relationships in life fall into the category of consumer contracts. Consumer contracts, America loves consumer contracts. America loves free market economy. We're the great nation of uh, free market economy. And what that means is we have consumer relationships with everything. For a long time, our nation has been incredibly prosperous because we, don't we have options. We don't just have one option, and we don't only have, generally speaking, a government-mandated option. We have different options that the merits of those options sort of rise to the surface. So whatever is the most affordable product, whatever is the superior quality product, that one gets incentivized and consumers bring it to the top of the surface, right? Uh, so you have a consumer relationship with a lot of stuff. You have a consumer relationship with your gas station, with your grocery store, with your internet service provider, with your cell phone provider, with your coffee shop. Here's the way it works with your coffee shop. You currently like your current coffee shop, but if there was a coffee shop built on the other side of the block, one street down, and they offered better coffee, better tasting coffee, that was a couple cents cheaper, you know what you would start doing? You'd kiss your old coffee shop goodbye and you would move on to that new coffee shop. Why? Because that's what a consumer does. I consume the product that benefits me most personally. It's allowed us as a nation to be fairly prosperous for a long time. Here's the problem. The problem is when we start looking at other human beings as consumer commodities. Um, so maybe the quintessential example of this would be to me in kind of socialistic, uh, consumeristic social media. And here's one example. And by the way, I say this, and I'm not at all, at all, against uh, like things like dating apps or anything like that. I actually think that they've helped uh, make it safer at times to enter into a relationship and also to prioritize certain things, like I, I want to find a Christian in my area, and therefore, so there are all sorts of blessings and Christian relationships have come through. I'm all for leveraging digital media for your relationships. Here's, here's my concern. If you, for instance, are on a dating app and you see somebody that you don't like the personal appearance of and you swipe left, just like you would swipe left if you saw a disgusting pair of shoes on your favorite, like on your Amazon app, because like I got to get that off the screen. I don't like the looks of it. At that point, you're treating human beings as though they were commodities. It's by definition dehumanizing. And practically, what would it look like if you start approaching your relationships like that? And make no mistake, Americans, what do I get out of this? That is the way we are approaching, is this beneficial for me? And I'll stay in it only so far as and as long as it's beneficial for me. If you get two people with that mentality, and let's say it just so happens to be fortunate enough that the person that you find most beautiful on your screen, they happen to find you the most beautiful on their screen, and you end up getting together and you're sitting there looking at one another in person, what's going to happen after a while? You know, nature is very cruel. As time goes on and the human body deteriorates and wrinkles 
at some point, they're not going to be the most beautiful person on your screen anymore. And you're not going to be the most beautiful person on their screen. Does that mean they should move on? Or should you still love them? Well, I think everybody here understands, of course, you should still love them. So why would you enter into a relationship on the basis of a trait that you know is going to get worse? Doesn't it actually make a little more sense to enter into a relationship on the basis of a trait that could potentially get better? And that's the big idea. I need you, I need us, collectively, to repent of looking at human beings as objects that we use in our lives for our own personal goodness, dating or otherwise. So what we want to do is we want to repent of treating humans like consumer products, and we want to approach marriage not as a consumer contract, i.e., what do I get out of this, but treat it as God intended it to be, which is a covenant relationship. If I make the right sacrifices, how can I bring blessings into this person's life? That's a covenant relationship. Make no mistake, sacrifice is the right word for a covenant. You cannot enter into a covenant without there being sacrifices made. And I think it's easily missed. You go back to the first marriage, Adam and Eve. You notice Adam is created out of the dust of the earth, but how is Eve created? From the side of Adam. He has to have a rib pulled out of him or something like that. In other words, he, like he has to sacrifice part of himself in order to enter into that relationship. And it's good for him. Uh, Eve in his life cures some of the loneliness. It's not good for man to be alone. It cures some of his loneliness, but it comes at cost to himself. You have to make some kind of sacrifice. You've got to give up the rib if you're going to enter into some kind of covenant-type relationship. Now, those of you and some of you have gone through like, premarital counseling with me, some of the things that we talk about in dissecting that opening chapters of, of the Bible as we talk about, you know, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they're baked out of different ingredients. That means that they have slightly different wiring. That means when the fallenness of the world hits in Genesis chapter 3, you'll notice they live in the same world, but when God announces the consequences of sin, Adam and Eve have slightly different consequences announced to them. That's because because of their wiring, they experience the fallenness of this world a little bit differently. Now, from a marriage perspective, if you don't understand that, it's going to be very difficult to communicate with and appreciate where your spouse is coming from very often, to understand that we, God has wired us compatibly and uh, in, a, in a way that we fit together, not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. But for our purposes here, the thing, again, that I want to say is to enter into this covenant relationship is it, must, it requires a sacrifice. And Maybe my favorite illustration of this in the modern world, because it's, it's right there in a wedding ceremony, is when people give uh, wedding vows and they write their own vows. And I'm, again, not against that at all, but I always coach couples that I'm doing the wedding for in writing their vows. Why? Because most of us have been to a wedding at some point where people wrote their own vows. And generally speaking, the way they sound is like this. At that moment, the person is professing how much I currently love this person that I'm about to marry. And it's really beautiful, and it's really sentimental, and it's totally useless. You know why? Because in a free society where you don't have arranged marriages, it's probably assumed that you love that person. Like, if no one's forcing you to marry that person, why on earth, why else would you be binding yourself to them until death do us part? Of course you love them. Not to mention, on their wedding day, they're looking the best they've ever looked. They're the most lovable they could possibly be. Of course you love them. I don't want to know if you love them right now. And that's not what a marriage vow is. That's never been what a marriage vow is. What a marriage vow is 50 years from now. 50 years from now, when they don't look quite this way. Uh, when a lot of those adorable quirks have become somewhat, you know, they become, let's say, tendencies. 
you know, like uh, issues. Through the highs and the lows and when the makeup is off, are you still committed to putting that person in their best interest ahead of yourself? That's what a marriage vow is. That's always been what a marriage vow is because marriage is a covenant. Uh, it's I will be good to you undeservedly in the future. I'm committed to laying down my life for your best interest ahead of myself because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for me. Okay? So you have to approach it as a covenant. Secondly, both parties have to look at their own selfishness as the greatest enemy to the marriage. Um, as a pastor, you know, people confess a lot of things to you. I haven't had too many people confess selfishness to me. Like, I'm just a really selfish person. And even if you can get yourself to verbalize and articulate that I, I struggle with self-centeredness, almost no one, I think, can actually appreciate how much other people are hurt by our self-centeredness. And uh, marriage exposes that. Because you get into a marriage relationship, and one of the things that you notice is uh, even though you guys profess to love each other every day, that person, so far as I can tell, their instinctive filter for making decisions is, do I like this? Do I want this? Do I enjoy this? And you're thinking, well, what about me? You didn't ask me. What's actually worse than that, however, is that you do the exact same thing. And it's exposing your selfishness. And, and the reality is, you were just as selfish when you were single as when you're married, but nobody was calling you out on it before. You know, every time when you were choosing, here's what I want to eat for dinner, and here's when I want to eat, and here's when I want to go to bed, and here's what I want to watch on TV, and here's where I'm going to go, and I don't have to tell anybody about it. And now i got to tell people about it. See, you're doing the exact same things, but that's the problem. It's exposing to you how self-centered all of your decisions were in the past, but now that you're married... Somebody that you truly care about is being negatively and directly impacted by your self-centered instinct. That's very hard and very painful. It's, it's not a bad thing. God is, is using marriage to minister to you to bring some of that to light for the sake of repentance. Now, how do you improve though? One of the things I've also noticed in marriage counseling is that people can be, uh, if I sit down with one or both parties in a marriage and there's you know, an issue there, people get very... Um, persuasive and articulate in explaining what their, other, what their spouse's issues are. You know, they become, everybody becomes uh, a novelist when we're starting to describe, you know, here's, here's what the problems they bring to a relationship or problems they bring to a marriage. The, the operative question, though, is not, okay, do they have any problems? The operative question is, what are you going to do about it? You know, because actually the more you try to control other human beings whether it's the way they think or act or speak or their behaviors, when you try to control another human being, does that tend to work real well or does that only tend to antagonize them? So the reality is that even though most marriage issues that I'm aware of are not just 50-50, most are also not 100-0. And we don't have problems admitting that as Christians because we all confess each week, I'm a sinner who's saved only by the grace of God and therefore I probably haven't handled everything perfectly. I probably haven't communicated everything perfectly. So whatever my number is, I probably have some percentage in that. And therefore, let's say it's 60-40 or let's say it's 70-30. What am I going to do about their 60? Well, probably nothing. And if I try really hard to control them in their 60, I'm not saying, by the way, don't confront people on sins. Of course, Christians do that for one another. Of course, Christians call one another to, lovingly to repentance. But I'm saying as far as trying to control the other person, 
Can I control their 60%? No. So what does God call me to do? Own my 40%. Repent of my 40%. Humble myself and work on my 40%. And actually, what's really interesting is when your spouse, whatever percentage they own in this, when they perceive you humbling yourself, repenting of your sins, owning the mistakes that you've made, and working really hard to improve upon it, you know what that ends up having an effect on the other person? It ends up being a heart-melting kind of, well, okay, if they can do this, if they're working for this, then maybe I can too, okay? So practically, each party has to, this shouldn't surprise us as Christians, each party has to own and repent of what my issues are that are potentially damaging this relationship. Number three, here's the last point. God's design of headship. This is probably the most controversial point, and I'm not going to reread this whole section here because I think a lot of you probably already know what it says, but I will put it on the screen. And I am going to say this is absolutely foreign language in a modern Western society. Um, I'd also say that shouldn't surprise us. If God is holy and I'm not inherently perfect and the society that I live in is fallen, doesn't it stand to reason that when God speaks into our society that it would challenge us and maybe even offend our flesh a little bit? I think that's perfectly logical. I think that's exactly what happens with marriage and when God talks about things like gender, too. Uh, here's what I do know, however. I know that in the Bible, spiritual gifting is never occasioned by gender. And what I mean by that is, so far as I can tell, every single gift that the Holy Spirit gives to any man in the Bible he also gives uh, the same skill, the same aptitude, the same talents, the same spiritual gifting equally to women. God, the, the Spirit does not discriminate in those spiritual giftings at all. That's one principle of Scripture. Another principle of Scripture that is just undeniably true, though, is that there is a different role between a husband and a wife in how to express those gifts. Now, why? I don't know. Like, the Bible doesn't actually say uh, God doesn't tell us why he creates man first and then woman from man. God does not tell us why he puts uh, Adam as head of household in that relationship and why he seeks that for men. Any more than he tells us about the dynamics between son and father in the Trinity. Have you ever noticed that? Like, so I think there's actually a really good analogy in there. The Jesus is every bit God. That's part of being Christian is acknowledging that. Jesus is every bit as powerful, every bit as talented, every bit as intelligent, every bit as holy, every bit as divine as the Father. Absolutely true principle of Scripture. And yet another true principle of Scripture is that Jesus undeniably submits to his Father's headship. We know that uh, most obviously perhaps in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he does it throughout his entire ministry. Both of those principles are 100% true. And therefore, they're not mutually exclusive. And so why does God encourage what he encourages in terms of different expressions of our spiritual gifting between genders, especially in marriage? I don't know. I honestly don't know. He does not tell us any more than he tells us the distinctions between son and father. Um, I do think there's all sorts of interesting research out there regarding uh, genderedness and sex and um, why God may have encouraged men in one role and women in another role. And I'll tell you what, I'm not going to share any of that with you right now. Do you know how hard it is for me to not share decent research with you on something that I think is actually powerful and persuasive? I'm, I'm not actually going to do it. You know why? 
even if it's true, even if it provides explanatory power for why God does what he does, I also know the difference between it's not being inspired. And I want to make a very clear distinction here because any, you can find a logical argument for almost anything. So what the, at the end of the day, what we're submitting to is not logical arguments. What we're submitting to is the inspired word of God. Here's what I think is actually more helpful. Three things. Number one, um, God's track record of undeserved goodness to us. If you look at all the ways that God has been good to you, do you honestly think that he would create a design that would intentionally hurt you in any way? I don't think so. Number two, God is the designer. If he designed you, is it possible that he knows something about you that you don't even understand about yourself? I think that's not only possible, I think that's probable. Number three, Jesus is totally perfect. Jesus could not be any more perfect. And yet he gladly submits to the headship of his father and therefore I know that there's nothing wrong with that concept of headship because it's good enough for Jesus. So here's my summary on that. Takeaway is Christian husbands lead households by living every day the way Jesus did for the church, always sacrificing, always placing the best interest of their spouse ahead of themselves out of reverence for Christ. And Christian wives, in response to sacrificial leadership, offer respect, affirmation, praise, and yes, even submission to Christ-like husbands honoring that headship. Well, who gets to decide what happens when we have to make a decision about blank? The answer is, I don't know. And you don't know either. Have you noticed how shockingly few details there are in this text? He establishes the principle and then he just lets it be. You know what he's saying? God is brilliant, obviously. He knows that cultures change and personalities and relationships change a little bit and dynamics of different family units for a variety of reasons change. And therefore, he doesn't lay down a bunch of details. He gives us a principle and what he expects is that Make no mistake, this principle of headship is there, but he expects that every Christian couple will honor it, pray about it, and ask God to help them submit to it out of reverence for Christ. Okay? Final point. What does this point to? So the Apostle Paul kind of closes out the text by saying, this is a profound mystery, and anybody who's ever read this is like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get that piece of it. It's maybe the one piece I get, but this is mysterious. Uh, and then he says something really revealing. He says, but I'm ultimately talking about Christ and the church. In other words, everything that I've just taught you directly applies to marriage here on earth, but it's not an end in and of itself. It points to something greater than itself. And, um, you know, why is that? Because marriage isn't God. It's not an eternal inst institution. It's a pointer. Now, Jesus overtly states that in the Gospels, actually. There's a time when the Sadducees come to him and they try to trip him up because they ask him about a widow hypothetical widow who she remarries and then that husband dies and she remarries again and she does this a couple times and they're like, well, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? And Jesus says, you guys don't get it. Marriage is a construct that I created for this lifetime for a specific reason. Because when a husband and wife act out of other-focused love in marriage, it's perhaps the clearest representation that we find on earth for what the three persons of the Trinity have been doing for one another in other focused love for all eternity. And actually, I'd go so far as to say, and many of us have experientially known this, if you're in a bad marriage, there is hardly an experience here on earth that points probably closer to hell. But if you are in a 
God-filled, spirit-fueled, Christ-centered marriage, there is hardly an experience here on earth that is a better pointer to what the experience ultimately of heaven will be. And that's really encouraging for all of us. You know why? Because it doesn't matter what state you're currently in. If you are single, and God will call some of us to singleness, and that what that means is he has a very specific way that he wants to use you in your life that is actually, you're, you're better prepared to do that as a single person than you would be as married. That's a high honor. But it also means that it, even if you don't get married in this life, the thing that marriage in this life ultimately points to, the real and ultimate thing, you're going to get all of that, intimacy with God for all eternity. Uh, for somebody who's in a bad marriage, what this text does is it gives us, you know, what we just looked at in point two, I gave you three sub-thoughts there. All of those, when you submit to them, they can improve your marriage. Um, but all, even if your marriage doesn't improve, it reminds you that the real ultimate thing is still coming and you're not going to miss out on any of that joy. Thirdly, people who are in a good marriage, guess what? It's encouraging because it says it gets even better than this. And fourthly, people who are, let's say, a widow or a widower, um, you probably have the most encouragement in all this because it says what? We know that our, our believer, believers, our loved ones who die in Christ, number one, we get to see them again. Number two, our relationship will be better than before because it'll be without sin. And number three, it will level up because it will be fully and ultimately experienced with God in heaven. And so all of this is possible ultimately because Paul is not talking just about marriage here on earth. He's talking about the ultimate marriage, which is between Jesus and his bride, his church, us. And actually, if marriage is an end in and of itself, and some people do have an idol of relationships, an idol of romance, and they treat marriage like it's an end in and of itself, if you do that, it's going to be disappointing and suffocating. Why? Because you're going to try to squeeze out of your spouse what only Jesus can actually give you. But... The real gospel is not marriage on earth. The real gospel is marriage with Jesus. And the Bible actually says that Jesus from eternity past looked down and he, he saw in us like only a shadow of what we could one day potentially be. But he didn't swipe left. He kept staring at us. He committed to love us. He committed to putting his our best interest ahead of his own. He saw everything we could possibly be with some love and some sacrifice on his behalf and therefore he came down, he gave himself on the cross, he united himself to us, paid all of our debts, endured the punishment for all of our sins and he continues to show patience to us despite all our self-centeredness. When we realize how deeply he loves us, it makes us better spouses to him as the bride of Christ and it also makes us better spouses to our earthly spouses. We're going to close with prayer. And uh, in the spirit of today, we're going to close with a verse of the church's one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.